0: This episode contains content that may be distressing for some listeners. Did you hear
1: something? Did you hear that? I did hear that.
2: Mm hmm. Someone in the theatre? Yes, there's nobody in that section right there, and that's where the noise came from. i just got a
3: shiver
2: on my leg. Welcome to May Day.
4: (laughs)
1: Psychiatric hospitals, mental institutions, mental asylums, lunatic asylums, nut houses, funny farms, the loony bin. Mental health facilities of bygone eras have gone by many names, and not all of them complimentary or kind. These hospitals, with their imposing architecture, their rundown appearance and supernatural reputations, are frequently considered awesome places, filled with ghosts and an aura of misery. But these places were often home to individuals who had no one to care for them, and nowhere else to go. These places were their home.
0: Welcome to Dead and Buried, a podcast that delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne and beyond. I'm Carly Godden.
1: And I'm Lee Hooper. episode we look at historic asylums in Victoria from their introduction in the mid-19th century to their eventual closure in the 1990s in the 19th century Victoria had the highest rate of what was then referred to as insanity in Australia and as we discovered Past understandings of what was considered insanity and what you could be institutionalised for were disturbingly broad. But was the dismantling of these institutions necessarily a good thing for all patients and for the wider community? From the time
0: someone was admitted to an asylum, a paper trail of official records was kept about them. While it's evidence of the degree of control exercised over these individuals, the patient files and administrative records kept about asylums make for a rich source of research today. However, we can't access the most recent files because all asylum records are closed for 75 years.
1: The asylums themselves are also a great historical resource. The design and features of the building tell us so much about the treatment of mental health patients over time. And while many asylums in Victoria have been demolished or repurposed, there are still a few that you can visit. My obsession with creepy and abandoned places means that I've been on my fair share of ghost tours at asylums in Australia and overseas, but even though this was pretty new to Carly, it didn't take too much to convince her to book some accommodation and take a road trip out to Beechworth, which is in Northern Victoria, and is home to the renowned Beechworth Asylum, or Mayday Hills, our focus of this episode.
0: Beechworth Asylum, or Beechworth Hospital, or Mayday Hills Hospital for the Insane, was built in 1867 as somewhere to put individuals who were mentally ill, sick, or even just homeless or hard to handle. Beechworth was the fourth such purpose-built hospital in Australia, and one of the three largest. At its peak, the hospital had 1,200 patients, 600 men and 600 women. When built, the asylum was like its own mini-town. It was surrounded by almost 106 hectares of farmland and had its own piggery, orchards, kitchen gardens, fields, stables and a barn. The asylum also had tennis courts, an oval and a cricket pavilion, a kiosk and even a theatre. And it's in the green room behind the Bijou Theatre where we spoke to current co-owner of the asylum and ghost tour operator Jeff Brown.
2: I'm Jeff Brown. Um, I was a nurse for 15 years and an attendant carer for disability prior to that and a salesman prior to that. Moved over to teaching, um, ran the Australian Horror Writers Association, which is where we first came into connections with the asylums, by running creative retreats for horror writers. We uh, got to know the, the owner of this place and he rang us one day and offered to sell us part of it and we could run the ghost tours and the history tours, so we packed up and moved over.
0: It didn't take long for Jeff and his family to get the knack of running tours of the Grand Asylum.
2: Now we run ghost tours seven nights a week, which are history tours cleverly disguised as ghost tours. We educate you whether you want it or not. Um, history tours on the weekend and paranormal investigations five nights a week.
1: Now I know that I'm not the only one who finds asylum buildings magnificent, if not a bit creepy, but there was a reason for their design.
2: the the designs for our main three asylums that still exist were taken from a British style. There was a a British style that was brought into, into place over in Britain with a front administration building with wings extending backwards on each side which would cater to male and female patients so they had that separation of gender and that design was found to be successful to a large degree. They would have the less disruptive and quieter patients toward the front, and the further back you go in each wing would be the noisier patients and the more dangerous patients, so that visitors weren't confronted with patients that were confrontational.
1: So we've heard about the importance of the design and the layout of the buildings, but what were some of the social and economic implications of having an asylum erected in your hometown?
2: The two that were regional, which were Arredale at Ararat and here at Beechworth were both set up in gold areas where there was a lot of in- infrastructure to begin with. So it, it was a very big employer within town. The three main employers for Beechworth were the asylum, the jail and the tannery. So the tannery has since closed down, the jail's moved about 8 kilometres out of town. And when the asylum closed down, I was told that the line at Centrelink was out the door, around the corner, down the block, around the other corner, and almost back around to the front door again. It was quite a big employer. There were entire generations of families that worked here. At its peak, it had around 600 staff. The majority of them lived within Beechworth and Surrounds, and we had the dedicated nurses' hostel here as well, and nurses' accommodation. So there was a lot of infrastructure that was set up as a result of the asylum. Initially, it was a five day journey from Melbourne by coach, but because of the gold mining, it didn't take very long for the rail system to be set up and Beechworth had its own station. Very unusual for such a small town.
1: For a bit more on that, here's Mayday Hills history tour guide, Bromwyn Jared, who also spoke to us in the Bijou Theatre.
3: Well, obviously it was a major place of employment The asylum needed goods and services, so there'd be employment um, opportunities for shopkeepers and bakers and those sorts of people, um, especially if the facilities here on site had broken down or whatever. Um, They did try and make this place a self-sufficient city, in a little city sort of thing as much as possible. You had all sorts of employees here doing all sorts of jobs, from broom making to shoemaking.
0: While asylums may have left us with a legacy of impressive facades and could help create thriving towns, we're more interested in what was going on inside them. Who were their patients? There's no doubt that they could house residents who truly were a threat to the outside world, or at least were legally prescribed to be.
2: We did have our own criminally insane ward. It was much smaller than J ward. It was only six to eight cells and a waters area and a day room and such. But there were some... Quite criminally insane. One particular patient we know of is Ted. He didn't like his haircut, so he slit his barber's throat. Six foot five, massive guy. The whole time he was in here, no one gave him a haircut. It's
1: like reverse sweetie title, isn't
2: it? Very much, yes. (laughs) But
1: what did an average patient look like? Was there even such a thing?
2: Well, let's face it. Initially, anybody that didn't fit into society, either through criminal activity or through lack of ability to see the mores of any society and to fit in, were thrown in prison. So we had people who were suffering from dementia, people who were suffering from depression or anything like that, put in jail with people. So it was changed in the 1800s. They brought in the whole concept of mental health separation and... The asylums were then the go-to place for anybody that wasn't a hardcore criminal. So they would put anybody in here with anything to do with mental health, anything to do with physical disabilities. There were kids with Down syndrome in here, kids with what we now know to be ADHD. There were women who were going through um, post-partum depression. There were people with shell shock from the wars. That was a big influx into the asylums after each of the major wars. And it was just a way to keep people that didn't fit into society separate from society. Without places like these, people would have either been locked away in someone's attic, or if the family was on the poor side, when there was no social welfare, they would have been kicked out into the street and lived or died.
0: So should all patients have been there?
3: Yeah, they used these places as a dumping ground. And it wasn't just for those sorts of people either. It was for the single girls that were pregnant and all sorts of other people. I think a lot of it was uh, Lack of knowledge, ignorance, that sort of stuff as well. People were terrified of what they didn't understand. So this was the sort of place to to bring them.
2: There were people that were put in here for some very, very strange reasons. There were people who were hit by wagons or beaten in a fight and ended up with what we now understand to be acquired brain injury, hit in the head and a bit funny afterward. There were women put in here for practicing the oldest profession of prostitution. You were arrested three times for prostitution. On the third charge, you would end up in an asylum. There were unmarried mothers. There were gold miners put in here who were isolated out in the bush. We've actually heard from one old nurse that came and spoke to us that there were a group of Italian women who lived out in the middle of nowhere, each would live with their husband, they didn't have any kids, the husband would be out mining all the time and the social isolation had such an effect on each of them that they would band together once a year, have themselves committed, stay in here a couple of weeks to get the social aspect back again and then go back to the husband. So they were self-committing and they were being self-released. So they came in with the understanding that they could be released after that short period of time. But there were other people in here that once they were committed, they never left.
1: In researching this episode, I dug up a report presented in 1917 to the Victorian House of Parliament by the Inspector-General of the Insane. It provides a revealing, if not fascinating, snapshot of the mental health facilities in Victoria in the early 1900s. I've got a copy of it here, and Carly and I are going to just read a little bit from a table showing the probable cause of patients that were admitted in 1917. Uh, So we've got... Let me have a look. Causes that
0: were split into moral, So that's including domestic trouble, adverse circumstances, mental anxiety and worry over work, religious excitement and love affairs.
1: Ooh. Saucy. Saucy. And there was also the physical, which included drinking, pregnancy, VD, sexual abuse of oneself, sunstroke, lactation. Sorry, what's VD? Venereal disease. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you, it's good to know about that. Okay. (laughs) Noted. (laughs) Um, sunstroke, lactation, ovarian disorders, puberty, starvation, and the winner, old age.
0: Yeah, right. And this was in 1917. So research into mental health, that was fairly well underway, or at least somewhat underway, I think. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, it's really troubling to think that these institutions house individuals who today, you know, you might treat with, a course of counselling or course of antibiotics or not even anything at all. I mean, puberty, come on.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It just goes to show how much it was a dumping ground uh, for anyone who didn't fit in or couldn't be looked after.
2: I mean, initially, there was just restraint and water treatments early on. They would just lock people up in what they call padded rooms but were actually just lined with wood because wood's softer than brick. So, with wood being softer than brick, it's technically padded. They had restraints, which were straitjackets. There were the, the full wrap type. It was almost like a stretcher that people were strapped into, so they could be picked up at each end and carried around and set down to where they needed to be, and they couldn't move to hurt themselves or others.
1: There's no doubt that methods for the treatment of those with psychiatric issues during the earlier years of operation in the asylums had their problems. As we said, there exists a wealth of patient and administrative files of this period. Considering the resources at their disposal, treatment, though archaic at times, arguably did have the intention of being fair and protecting of the staff and other patients. But with the use of restraints, thoughts come to mind of the potential for abuse and neglect of patients.
2: Restraints were used and are still used to this day, to some degree. We use chemical restraints now more than physical, but there are cases, especially in nursing homes, where they're not meant to tie people or put the seatbelt on in chairs, but for their own safety, they do. Straight jackets, separation, segregation cells were the only real way to control potentially violent patients during the early days, and it was overdone, I'm sure, and there was a definite aspect of abuse amongst some asylums. Beechworth seems to have a very good record in regard to treatment of patients. We've done a lot of research into that side of things and everything we can find suggests that the staff up here were particularly caring. There was a very low rate of, of problems of abuse of patients or other staff members We've actually found um, records of a staff punishment book, and I've read through the whole thing. And the very worst I can find was staff sneaking patients out for a night on the town, <laughs> and being fined three shillings for it, and then doing it again the next week. So the staff here in Beechworth itself had a really strong relationship with the with the asylum. Beechworth was very accepting and very tolerant toward patients and the facility itself.
1: But by the mid 20th century, something came along that would dramatically alter the plight of the mentally ill.
2: And then Dr John Cade, who famously worked here and Melbourne and Sunbury asylums, rediscovered the use of lithium as a treatment for bipolar to help reduce the manic aspects of that particular disease. And that was the really the main breakthrough in using drugs for therapy.
0: Undeniably, medicating those with psychiatric problems was groundbreaking and saw a change in the population of asylums and how they were run. But how were patients managed and treated in a post-medicated world? We spoke to family historian Anita, who took up a position as a nurse at Beechworth Hospital in the 1970s.
5: Beechworth was probably, certainly in the time that I was there, it was somewhat more humane than other hospitals that I visited. Um, I, you know, I can recall going to other other hospitals and having a look at how their system went, and you come back to Beechworth and go, okay, we're bad, but we're not that bad. As much as I disliked some of the things I had to do and the treatment of some of the residents, the patients that were there, which was harsh for a lot of them, because you know you try, they tried not to over-medicate. But there was times when there was no other option. I mean, I spent time in the medical ward, um, which was there, which was where people went to have their electroconvulsive therapy, so their ECT, um, which, at least, it was starting to get some kind of humanity to it. But in the years prior to that, it was, you know, we it was explained to us how it was tra- how people were treated back then, and it was just horrible. Um, and th- they did lose their minds, because they were fried, literally fried.
4: Praises Dr Dax. I would like, through your paper, to thank Dr Dax for the wonderful improvements he has done at Kew Mental Hospital. As a regular visitor, the difference is amazing. Several patients I know now feel that they will get better and be able to go home soon. Several of the patients came over and let me see their nice new sports suits. They seemed so proud and happy and looked so nice and clean. It was the first time I had gone home happy, as that is how I left my loved one. God bless you, Dr Dax, and I do sincerely hope you're not handicapped in your work through lack of funds. Mrs Doris Barkley, Sydney Road, Coburg. The Herald, Melbourne, 17 June 1952.
0: Dr Eric Cunningham Dax was a British-born Australian psychiatrist who many say revolutionise the world of psychiatric treatments and mental health care. In the mid-1950s, Dr Dax pioneered the use of art as part of mainstream treatment. He believed that the creation of art by clinical patients would have a therapeutic effect and could help in the understanding of mental illness. His 1953 book, Experimental Studies in Psychiatric Art, received much accolade and the British Medical Journal endorsed his work. Later, the British National Health Service engaged artists to initiate art programmes in other hospitals in the UK. Dax was appointed as the inaugural chairman of the Mental Hygiene Authority of Victoria in 1951 and used this role to implement wide ranging mental health reforms, with changes which saw improvements in the treatment of patients, emphasising dignity, humane treatment, and integration of patients into the greater community. So influential was Dr Dax that in 1961 the World Federation for Mental Health
1: published his book, From Asylum to Community. During his time in Victoria, Dr Dax began to collect some of the artworks made by psychiatric patients. And when the facilities started to close in the 80s and 90s, Dr Dax believed the works were a valuable educational tool and saved 8,000 artworks from destruction these artworks became part of the cunningham dax collection which now consists of more than 15,000 artworks the collection and the only one of its kind in the world is held at the dax center which is in the university of melbourne campus carly and i went there and we were suitably fascinated all right i think this is it yep yep that big sign says the DAX Centre, incorporating the Cunningham DAX collection yep. on the wall.
0: So, yeah so we've just come through University of Melbourne building and yeah, now yeah. yep.
3: going in. Hello,
1: hi,
0: how are
1: you
3: going? How are you? Great, i about 8,000 pieces of historical. And then the other 8,000 pieces have been given to us at different times. And so we know the artists and with the historical collection, a lot of it's anonymous and we don't even know who the artists are. Oh, wow. Yeah, no. It's quite interesting. Wow. But we kind of know what it speaks to. Because um, some of it, like a lot of it was salvaged from the different institutions. And so it's even on like, it can be on really thin butcher paper and all sorts. <laughs> so of yeah, all um, sorts of different mediums. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really mm. interesting.
0: While art therapy continues to be practised today, not all of Dr Dax's treatment methods endured or are without controversy. In the 1940s and 50s, Dax was medical superintendent at the Nathreen Hospital in Surrey, England, which had had success developing and advocating the use of somatic or physical treatments on patients. This included the use of chemical shock, electroconvulsive therapy and lobotomy.
1: And it was in Victoria that Dr Dax first practised lobotomy Although not to great success, let's talk about lobotomy for a minute. A lobotomy, or locotomy, is a form of psychosurgery, a neurosurgical treatment of a mental disorder that involves severing connections in the brain's prefrontal cortex. It was believed that by severing the prefrontal cortex, some patients with severe mental disorders could experience some symptomatic relief. However, these improvements were made at the cost of loss of the patient's intellect, personality, and arguably their quality of life. And they were the lucky ones. Other patients fared much worse, being reduced to a vegetative state, or in 5% of cases, even dying. Lobotomy was practised in Australia much more briefly than in other countries. For example, the US lobotomised about 40,000 patients. A quick search of the Victorian Inquest Index shows only two patients succumbing to lobotomy in the 1950s, though neither were at Beechworth. By the way, we've been told that lobotomies were not practised at Beechworth Hospital. Although, as access to those mid-century records will be closed until at least 2030, we've got no real means of verifying what kind of treatments were actually going on. Thank you.
0: That's the thing. I think it's kind of like group think that it's the power of suggestion.
1: Yeah.
0: And then you kind of like, because even then I had like a t- slight moment where I was like, oh, oh, uh, uh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and also like, I just keep thinking of this character called Spaghetti. Um, Spaghet. Yeah, he's
5: like, like And his voice <laughs> like runs
0: through. So if we talk about asylums, we must also mention the literal ghost in the room. A few surviving asylums are now used for history tours or ghost tours or even ghost hunting. When listening to people discuss their own experiences at Beechworth, there's a lot of talk about ghostly figures, shadows, doors that slam and the oppressive feeling of doom or terror or, strangely enough, even calm.
1: Yeah, so, you know, about asylums, I was personally traumatised early on in life after watching this movie called Carnival of Souls. Okay, I haven't seen it. What goes on? Don't watch it. (laughs) (laughs) It's set in this, like, creepy-ass asylum, and it's got some really disturbing residents, including these, like, mummy-like patients um, that follow you even into a car wash. Into a car wash. (laughs) Yeah, it's terrifying. So I can never go into a car wash ever again after that. That's such a shame. I love car washes. Well, you should watch it, and then you'll never go in either. Oh. But seriously, it's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. Yeah, right. Okay. Did you hear something? Did you hear that? I did hear that. Mm Mm-hmm someone
2: in the uh, yeah. theatre? There's nobody in that section right there and that's where the noise came from. <laughs> <laughs> I just got a my leg. Welcome to May Day. <laughs>
0: now what's your opinion? On Asylums mm. and the About supernatural. The supernatural. I don't know you know I want to be scared but I just don't feel it and I have heard stories from people who've lived in Beechworth in their kind of early 20s or teenage years that they spent time in the asylums at night like drinking and smoking and going through them so I don't know maybe some of those noises that people hear could be like naughty kids teenagers teenagers (laughs) little jerk teenagers yeah little rat bags but what is it about these buildings that gives them a reputation for being supernatural haunted places and why are people so fascinated with them is Jeff.
2: Mankind has always had a particular fascination with dark history. We like hearing about horrible things that we do to one another. True crime, horror. It's very popular, you know, anything to do with the darker side. We get some people come through, they're unhappy that we don't tell more tales of torture. But that's not what we're about. We're about retaining the history, not manipulating it to make the place seem darker. But these places, they saw a lot of suffering. There was a lot of frustration. There was a lot of sadness. There's a lot of hostility. There was a lot of, frust- again, frustration. People were here you know, were frustrated. They couldn't be who they thought they were. They didn't have the freedom to act the way they felt they should or needed to. So horror movies, all that sort of thing, they have pushed the dark side of asylums. Oh my God, that was terrible treatment. No, it wasn't. But that is what is remembered and that's what's spoken about.
3: And what about their own supernatural experiences? Tommy Kennedy was here in the 1940s and from what we have been learnt about him, he was a tall, red-headed, skinny larrikin. Loved to play tricks on people and all that sort of stuff. And there's a story that a lot of people tell about how he was in charge of the body trolleys. So when a person would die, he'd come along, pick you up, take you to the morgue but it'll take him about two hours to get you to the mall because he would take you all the way around the hospital to say goodbye to all your friends. Tommy died in our, had an accident in our kitchen um, in the 1940s, bad accident with boiling water, very painful death. I think it took him two days to die. And he still hangs out here at the hospital. He is one of our spirits. So we see him quite a lot in the area where the tours start from.
0: Have you ever seen him with a trolley?
3: (laughs) I don't actually see him, I hear, or I feel. He likes to play with my phone. So I can put my phone down on the bench and it's on lock and you can come back and it's open to camera and even open to video, ready to film something. And no one else out there knows my password, so it's not one of the other staff messing around with me.
2: (laughs) As for the haunted side, I'm logical. I always look for rational explanations for things but I believe that there is a level of, I won't say supernatural, I'll say misunderstood, unable to be explained occurrences that go on here.
5: I have a personal interest in all of that sort of stuff anyway, Um, having A, worked in Mayday and know that, the beautiful old buildings, I mean, part of Mayday, there's wards there that were closed down power turned off, water cut off, but still things happen in those buildings. they are all got old, beautiful timber floors, timber floors creek. And um, I worked in the the top wards which were above the admin, which then went across... There was a locked area that was beyond, that went over the top of where the theatre was and further down that that big, long ward, which had been locked up. That behind the theatre part... That had been cut off from power and water and everything else before I even started working there. That would had been locked off. You work night shift and you could watch out the window and you could see a light come on down the other end. Now, hang on a minute, that place is totally locked.
2: Buildings taking in echoes, I think, of long-term actions within them. And the echoes in these old buildings are sad and angry and confined. You know, people lived their whole lives here, they died here. We've got over 9,000 recorded deaths. It's a lot of people that have passed on in this place. We've got a lot of staff that spent their whole lives here caring for others. Some of them probably didn't want to move on. We've got a notoriously famous Matron Sharp, I mentioned earlier. She's still seen to this day. She still hangs around the women's ward. We think it is to look after the unfortunate spirits of the patients that she cared for while she was alive. And whenever people make contact during the paranormal investigations with anything purporting to be matron sharp, the whole place calms down. The feeling within the women's ward becomes calm and centred.
1: Of course, all this talk about the kindly ghost of matron Elizabeth Sharp perked our research ears. Not much has been previously written about Elizabeth, but after some marriage searches and cross-matching with ancestry trees, we located our matron and some information on her life. We know that Elizabeth Frances Pollard was born in Market Harborough, Leicestershire, England on the 7th of April 1844. She came to Australia with her family, and in 1866, Elizabeth married Dr William Murray Sharp at Taradale, Victoria. Dr Sharp took up the position as the resident surgeon of the Ararat Hospital. Elizabeth and William had two children and continued living in Ararat until tragedy struck in 1876, when Dr Sharp suddenly died from pleurisy. Elizabeth took her two children, William and Annie, to Beechworth. And in 1878, she took up the position of matron at Mayday Hills Asylum, where she stayed until she resigned in 1893. Matron moved to Berrigan in New South Wales to live out the rest of her life with her son, William. She passed away on the 9th of June, 1909, at the age of 65. Now, just this bit on the matron resigning. Yeah. So we're told in the tour that she left Beechworth Asylum due to ill health. Yeah, that's right. And that's also what it says online on her family tree's but, and I feel kind of mean about this, but I was looking in the staff incidents registers at the public records office just to see what kind of offences the staff were guilty of, and Elizabeth was in there. What? I know, and I was like, what would our kindly caring matron be doing in the staff incident register? mm mm-hmm. And it says that on the 1st of July, 1884, she was under the influence of drink and neglecting to perform her duties. I love that. So she was drunk at work. She was drunk at work (laughs) in 1884. So this is a good, like, six years after they moved to Beechworth. Ah, right. She was suspended from duty for one day and fined five pounds. That's a bit rough. I I guess, you know, times were tough. Yeah. I kind of love that. Yeah, I just think that's hilarious. She was drunk. Imagine them all just drinking. Yeah, just booze
0: at work. Well, maybe, you know, it's that kind of environment. you Need a little thing to get
1: you by. I imagine there was a lot of drinking going on. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it still happens today. <clears throat> Not me though. Never. Never. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's one other offence. Okay. And it's dated the seventh of July, eighteen ninety-three. Hmm. Now, Carly, you may want to read that out. Okay.
0: Okay. So it says, and it's kind of a bit hard to read, but let me just squint. Found under the influence of liquor and unfit for duty. A penalty. Her resignation accepted by the Honourable, the Chief Secretary. Uh, okay. Yep.
1: Yeah, so she actually didn't leave. Because, well, she might have been ill, but she was also drunk. Oh, uh, a lot of the time, seems. Well, I don't know. There's only the two registered there. But Maybe I guess- she just had enough and she was like, I'm getting wasted. I'm going <laughs> to tell him that I don't want this job no more. We've all been there. Yeah. But, you know, this is not the kind of stuff we were looking for when we were looking for information on the caring matron. Uh, Yeah, not at all. (laughs) But I guess we don't really know what kind of demon she was dealing with.
0: Yeah, and due to the lack of documentation, it's really impossible to know what kind of a person matron was. Uh, We can certainly say that during her 15 years at Mayday Hills, she definitely was well respected uh, and her actions noted as caring. According to an 1880 report of the Inspector of Lunatic Asylums, he was, and I quote, Much pleased with the care and attention evidently displayed by the matron, Mrs Sharp, and her assistants in giving an air of comfort to the wards by decorating them with curtains, antimacassars, etc. The wards are also relieved by a number of very handsome and healthy plants.
1: Um, antimacassa? What is that? <laughs> All right, so I'm just looking it up and it's the piece of cloth that people put over a chair to make it look fancy. Right, so like on the regional trains that we have on V-Line. Beautiful (laughs) anti Yeah,
0: it's kind of funny though because they possibly would have been treating patients with addiction in the facility and then the caring staff also have addictions but she's not you know for whatever reason her circumstances mean that she's not in the in the asylum and if you look through the
1: staff like incident register Mm. a lot of it's alcohol
3: hmm yeah
4: Coroner's inquest, having duly inquired when, where, how, and by what means the said Robert Park came by his death, I say that the said Robert Park died at Beechworth in the Baliwick on the 8th of September, 1906, from general paralysis of the insane and exhaustion. This despondent, Ada Frances Tracy Richardson, on her oath saith, I am a trained nurse in the hospital for the insane, residing in Beechworth. The deceased, Robert Park, came under my care on the 3rd of December 1905. He was then in a feeble and helpless condition. I was instructed to give him special treatment considering of diet and medicine. He improved until the 28th of August last, when he became helpless again. I was instructed to put him to bed again, where he remained for a few days. Afterwards, he was put in an invalid chair until the third instance, when he was again put to bed. Gradually becoming weaker, he sank and died at 3.30pm yesterday in my presence. He never made any complaint to me. No friends called to see him. Signed, Ada Richardson. Taken and sworn before me, Joseph Rowan J.P. The ninth day of September 1906 at Beechworth.
1: That was our voice actor reading out some of the inquests for Mr Robert Park, who died at Beechworth Asylum in September 1906. His cause of death? General paralysis of the insane. Now, we've heard from the Beechworth tour guides, Jeff and Brumwin, that upon entering the asylum, many people never left. But what did the records actually say? I had a look at the Victorian Public Records Inquest database, which ranges from 1840 to about the 1960s. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, every time someone died an unnatural or suspicious death in Victoria or in an institution, it was investigated by a coroner. Using the term asylum came up with a whopping 30,468 results. Narrowing it down to the terms Beechworth Asylum came up with 2,024 results. Okay, so it seems like there was a lot of people who did die at in the asylums. Uh, But did anyone ever leave or recover? Do we have any stats on that or anything? Yeah, that's interesting because, um, you know, when you go to these asylum things, they do talk a lot about all the people that have died and seems like no one ever left. Hmm. But that's not necessarily true. Uh, We've got the Hospitals for the Insane report by the Inspector General of the Insane for 1917 here. Okay, so that was the one we talked about earlier, right? That's right. And so... There's a whole bunch of tables that give some information. And the one I'm looking at at the moment, which I'm showing you, Mm -hmm. is the uh, admissions, discharges and deaths uh, for all of the asylums for 1917. Right. So the amount of people admitted was 762. Uh, The amount of people who recovered was 183. And the amount of people who were relieved, which is also under the discharge panel, was 105. The amount of people that died was 409. Okay, so you have a whole bunch of people being admitted, and then, you know,
0: quite a significant number dying, and then a small amount being discharged. Yeah. Okay. People are
1: leaving, so that's good. Yeah. Um, In Beechworth, we had um, a discharge rate of. Uh, Nine people left that year. Right. Right. Um, So there was nine that left and 41 that died, so that's quite a difference. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. And the the ones before were for the whole of Victoria? That's right. Okay. great, and that's just Beechworth. Yep. Looking through the Beechworth Asylum inquests that are available online, it seems that a great deal of these inquests state that the cause of death is the same as our Mr Parks, general paralysis of the insane... Okay, what does that mean? Like, doesn't give much away. I know, I had no idea, but uh, according to Doctor Google, general paralysis of the insane, or GPI for short, is a severe neuropsychiatric disorder classified as an organic mental disorder, and it's caused by the chronic meningocephalitis that leads to the cerebral atrophy in late-stage syphilis. Really? Yep. So, you know, all of these people syphilis. had syphilis. Wow. Apparently it mainly affected men in their mid-years and once symptoms started to appear, the patient generally declines and dies within five years. According to the 1917 report, which I mentioned earlier, in that year, 56 men and five women were admitted into mental health facilities in the whole of Victoria with GPI and none of them recovered. None. That's what it says.
0: Wow, that's really sad. Can Can I take a look at that? Yep, here you go. Thanks. Oh, right. Okay, so it says here that, uh, so in that year, 1917, there was a total of 409 deaths. uh, And the leading cause? Dementia. Mm. Oh, closely followed by, that's right, uh, general paralysis
1: of the insane. And as an aside, in that same year, Austrian physicist Julian Wagner-Jurek discovered that infecting patients with malaria could halt the progression of syphilis and, by extension, GPI. And he won a Nobel Prize for this discovery in 1927.
0: Hmm, okay. But um, don't you think having malaria would kind of be just as bad, if not
1: worse? At that time, I reckon it would be a pretty grim way to die. Hmm,
3: yeah.
1: But I don't know. Um, I guess thanks to the discovery of penicillin in 1928, nowadays a dose of penicillin can clear up syphilis like that. And uh, GPI is virtually unknown outside third world countries. So I imagine, like, yeah, with the deinstitutionalisation,
5: they've lost their family. Yes. Well, they have. They lost their family because staff and the other patients that they were with were their family, you know, particularly the intellectual disability side of things. They were the ones who were the ones that were probably the worst off because they were more like children. So, therefore, they've lost brother, sister because they were all one family, so to speak. And if someone got sick, then the others all worried about them and, yeah.
1: Very sad.
5: Beechworth Hospital
0: closed its doors in 1995. This closure was part of a greater movement towards the closing of asylums around the world, known as deinstitutionalisation. Deinstitutionalisation was a process of replacing long-stay psychiatric hospitals with less isolated community mental health services for those diagnosed with a mental disorder or developmental disability. It came about due to the trend of bringing mental health care back into the community and the success of psychiatric drugs to help manage psychotic episodes.
1: In the late 20th century, the movement led to the closure of many psychiatric hospitals, as patients were increasingly cared for at home or in halfway houses, clinics and mainstream hospitals. In Australia, deinstitutionalisation was introduced with the National Mental Health Strategy in April of 1992. According to the Victorian Department of Health, the aims of the strategy were to promote mental health within the Australian community, to prevent mental disorder where possible, To reduce the impact of mental disorders on individuals, their family and the community and to assure the rights of people with mental illness. While deinstitutionalisation was accepted and
0: implemented by most Western countries, the success of the program has been greatly debated. Many agree that a community approach to mental health and open hospitals increases the chance of recovery and leads to better management of mental illnesses as well as improved community understandings of mental health. But what impact did this have on individuals who are unable to assimilate into the community? Individuals who are so institutionalised that it basically felt like they were being chucked out onto the streets.
5: All of those that I know of were that survived um, were put into... Beechworth itself has got multiple share homes. So you've got one house that they had multiple houses that were built specifically for them and they were just segregated off. They were like mini wards. You would have five or six Two house, others, honey, had three or four, depending on how um, difficult they were. But those were then set up where you had like four houses with your courtyard in between. So there were many little units on their own. And that happened a lot around in different towns where they did the same sort of things. They were purpose built facilities. And they're still there today. Um, they're still, you know, they're still functional. There's still residents who were ex Mayday. According to the Department of Health, the National Mental Health
1: Strategy has been an overall success in keeping down instances of mental psychosis, integrating those with mental illness into the community, and ensuring they start seeing private practitioners. So on paper, it sounds like it all worked out for the best. But was it the best for everyone?
5: I definitely disagree with it. I was very strong about that. When, it, when the time came for them to be closed because we could all see as nursing staff what was going to happen. And, you know, it, it didn't work. It truly didn't work, in my eyes anyway. Um, others may say differently, but I don't believe it worked because you still had, you've still had you still got mini-institutions everywhere. Everywhere in Victoria, everything got closed down and there was no lock facilities for anywhere. Then all of a sudden, other hospitals had to open up and have units where they were locked. You've got a long-term locked unit in Heidelberg that was built, a 100-plus-bed, purpose-built institution again. So they were just adding again to the same scenario. You know, And you can't put everybody who's gone crazy into prison. They need to have somewhere else. And, I mean, a lot of the women uh, did... And, you know, a lot of women who then created problems ended up in, um, you know, Dame Phyllis Frost in, in prison. So, you know, the people feared when the institution... I mean, living in Beechworth and knowing that it was all, when it was all coming, the whole town feared for what was going to happen. And they were right. There was more problems with people going off their medications, not being able to, you know, look after themselves and, and you know, wandering the streets sleeping down the gorge or well, then you start finding people who've died because they've you know, they've had to rough it and couldn't manage
2: I think there is a need for facilities like this I mean the original word asylum meant a place of safety a place of refuge and that's what this was for so many people you know they had three square meals a day they worked so they had that as therapy they had support they had people watching over them they had medication once that was brought in in the 50s you know there's a place for places like this
1: this episode was produced researched and written by me lee hooper with editing and production support by carly godin mixing audio production and the original score was by christian o'brien conor gallagher was our voice actor and dead and buried theme music is by robin waters you can find the full list of music credits on our website
0: you can explore the original evidence we use to build our stories at deadandburiedpodcast.com connect with us on social media and discover more dead and buried episodes wherever you get your podcast from even better leave a review to help spread the word Season 2 of Dead and Buried was assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its Arts Funding and Advisory Body and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria.